0: Welcome to BitCast on Podcast One, the video game podcast with the Axeman. Welcome back to the BitCast. Back in Bit 47, I talked about Octopath Traveler, Square's RPG for the Nintendo Switch. At that point, I'd played about the first half of the game, or at least the main storyline, and I made some predictions about where I thought each character's plot would go and my General Impressions at the time. Since then, I've finally completed all eight of the main storylines, and I've had some time to let them all sink in a bit. I know that there's a secret true final boss and stuff like that that's available after you beat all eight of the storylines, but I'm kind of out of patience with the game and I feel like I've gotten as much out of it as I'm probably going to get for the time being. So, when I'm talking about the game in this episode, I'm more or less just gonna stick with main plot stuff. I'm talking about the second halves of everyone's stories today, so there's going to be a lot of spoiler talk. Just going over general impressions and updated versions of my opinions on everyone and their stories. I'm going to get right into it, going in order of how I completed everyone's fourth chapters. Let's get started. Cyrus. His story gets a little more focused in, I think. I don't know if that's the right way to put it. Real great way to start off this episode. But after he finds the source of the ancient necromancy book that he's looking for, He goes to a town in the mountains, and he comes across his old boss from the Royal Academy, who was always upset with Cyrus for sharing information to the students that he didn't want having shared. So they have, you know, philosophical disagreements. And then it turns out that the headmaster is in league with all the necromancers and stuff, and he basically turns into demonic Senator Armstrong and you have to kill him. And then for the fourth chapter, we follow his sidekick all the way to an ancient ruins in the forest with talks of ancient disasters and catastrophes, all that kind of stuff, all along the walls in the hieroglyphs and in missing books that have been lost to humanity for the ages. Cyrus and the final boss have similar disagreements over the value of knowledge and whether or not things should be shared, or things should be kept secret. and Ultimately, Cyrus believes that knowledge wants to be free. Knowledge is not good or bad, it's just a tool to be used by whoever's willing to use it. And that he just loves teaching and seeing people learn, and learning for himself, even from the people he's taught. And... Really, it's just kind of an admirable trait of his. He's still this big, goofy guy, but he definitely has some convictions that I can admire. Since his story was the one I finished first, because I wanted to go in reverse order of how I met them all in Chapter 1, his final boss was the first one that I encountered, and I was a little upset when I saw what kind of tricks his boss was using to make the fight harder. As I went through each of the final chapters, I noticed that each boss had their own unique gimmicks for shaking up the fight, which I thought was a good idea. You don't want to go back to the same well too many times. They weren't all winners, but they definitely found ways to make the bosses stand out from each other with their methods for countering your abilities. The second story I finished was Ophelia's story. First of all, I'd like to point out that I predicted before Chapter 3 that her father would secretly be some kind of a bad guy and betray Ophelia. Not quite. He dies. He dies from that sickness that was plaguing him in Chapter 1, and Her sister is the one who betrays her. Oops. Even then, it's kind of a sympathetic thing. She didn't want to betray Ophelia, but there's this evil cult going on, and she's emotionally vulnerable because her dad just kicked the bucket off screen, didn't even give him the dignity of dying on screen. And Ophelia has to go to that creepy town with all the people standing around that I mentioned in the other episode, and she has to kind of talk sense into her sister and go beat the evil cult leader. cult leader ended up being this side character that I ran into a couple times during Ophelia's early chapters, and I actually had it spoiled for me that I would be fighting that character at the end of this chapter. And I can't say I was surprised to learn it, I was really just kind of surprised that they actually decided to play him straight as the secret villain, which is kind of a weird way of putting it when he's supposed to be a twist, but you get what I mean, right? Nowadays in fiction, people secretly being evil is almost more common than the reverse, so I'm a little more surprised when someone is a good guy through and through. But not this case. That said, it was still a very satisfying and touching conclusion to her story. Maybe a little over the top in some parts of it, but her and Cyrus's chapters were kind of a good one-two punch to get me excited for everyone else's fourth chapters. Next up, Honet. So last we left Hanet, she found out that her master had indeed met up with the red eye and got petrified by it and he left a final will that said hey go talk to this seer she'll tell you how to fix me whoever finds this note and so honet finds the note and she goes to the seer she ends up fighting a dragon and getting a special potion that will undo petrification as soon as the red eye hits you with it and You know, ostensibly, you drink it before you're fully petrified, because, you know, statues aren't really good at drinking things, at least not to my knowledge. After the potion is prepared, Hana is pointed in the direction of the Red Eye's current location, and they have to go through an entire desert and a bunch of monsters running in terror from the Red Eye. And it occurred to me that I had yet to see what the Red Eye actually looked like We spend all of Hanit's story hearing about it and how dangerous it is, and it just kind of occurs to me that I had no visual for the red eye. I just assumed it was this giant wolf or something, until we finally come face-to-face with it right before the battle, and oh my goodness, it is not a wolf. It is definitely not a wolf. It is this weird, black, kind of sludgy, spindly-limbed, human-faced monster that's all black. And its visible insides and eye sockets are all red. And the narration in the fight keeps describing how it writhes around, and it shifts its weaknesses constantly, even when it's stunned, which just kind of suggests that physically the monster does not have a stable form. And this monster is just... oh my gosh, it is very striking to look at. Really exciting to finally put an end to that beast, and when the game takes a moment to let me know how I've made it upset by not dying, it's like, Ha, I just made this giant, raging monster upset. Who's the boss now? And I I like that I accidentally killed it with one of Tressa's attacks when I didn't mean to. So this little merchant ended up doing the work that entire armies and master hunters couldn't. That was how the Red Eye died. Sorry, Hanit. Hanit's story was not really amazing for me. It doesn't help that in Chapter 2 they already quashed my theory of what the Red Eye's origin could be. I do have some strong suspicions about that, though. Weren't touched upon in the game, but nothing is really talked about during Hanit's story proper. Mainly, the strongest takeaway I had from Hanit's story was the final... Chapter when we finally come face to face with the red eye. I should also point out that it never actually petrified me at all during the fight. I had no use for those special potions, and I've heard a lot of players remark something like that. You know, on one hand, that's kind of a good thing because the game only gives you ten and you have a maximum of four characters in a boss fight, so if the Red Eye was spamming the petrification attack, that would be pretty annoying. And I didn't even use Alfin's immunity to status effects abilities. He just plain didn't petrify us. I'm not sure what that was all about. Therion's Tale was the next one I finished. At first, his Chapter 3 gave me a little bit of anxiety because I was told how difficult it would be. And it was a little annoying, but honestly, I did fine with it. No more or less difficult than... Well, okay, I shouldn't say that because it was definitely more difficult than other fights. But it wasn't the most difficult fight. I mentioned that Therion had this mysterious partner in the past who was not around in the present... And sure enough, he's grown into a powerful master thief who is evil and abuses his lackeys and just all around bad dude. And he kind of triggers Therion's anxieties. He's the one who did a lot of the damage to Therion's psyche and his ability to trust in others, but through the help of the noble lady and her butler, and I'd like to imagine the other travelers. Therion learns that he's able to believe in other people, and he finally stands up to the other thief at the end of the fourth chapter, and they have their final battle. I really didn't expect the other thief to be Therion's final boss, but it it just makes sense, and it's simple and straightforward enough to work. I really like it for that. I'm not sure why I didn't really see that coming. In the case of Ophelia's final boss, it's more like I didn't want to see it coming, so I kinda gave the game the benefit of the doubt. In this case, the game just kinda surprised me with it, even though it really shouldn't have. But hey, I'm not gonna complain about that. Overall, it works. Also, I keep saying Therion or Therion. I think whenever they pronounce it in the game, it's Therion, but I just say Therion out of habit. I don't think anyone really cares how I say it, but it's something that I notice when I hear people talk about things. And I know some people are like that, too, so I want to acknowledge that. Oh, and uh, the butler with the exotic past is not Therion's long-lost relative. He's just a former thief who became a butler. So, there goes that prediction. All of my predictions are wrong so far. Actually, I think that was the last prediction I made, too. I I do have one more prediction, but that relates to Super Final Boss secret stuff, and while I acknowledge its existence, I'm not going to go over that in this episode anyway, so that's just kind of up for me to determine or not. I'm going to find that out on my own. Alfin's tale. Well, Alfin did eventually stop having to deal with sick, dying little girls. He comes across a sick, dying adult man, and there's this rival apothecary who's like, yeah, you're not good enough, I'm not going to heal you, you can die for all I care. And Alfin's like, whoa, whoa, you can't just do that. So he heals the guy instead. Then he figures out that the guy he just healed was... Some kind of escaped criminal murderer thug. And he runs off with some little kid. So, we're not completely away from the little kid angle. But Alfin goes to beat up the guy, and I I think he kills him. But he saves the kid, and the other apothecary who wouldn't heal the guy is like, Mmm, you see? I know not to trust all my patients, because once I saved a patient, and he killed my wife, so... Yeah. Does that do anything for you, Alfin? And Alfin just kind of angsts, and his wholesome story takes kind of a dark turn there. And that was the last Chapter 3 I did, so that was kind of a somber note to end Chapter 3 on. Chapter 3 is kind of where the game takes a darker turn in more of its narratives. You kind of start off in a dark place with Primrose, Everyone else is kind of, you can take or leave the amount of darkness in their first stories. Then around their third stories, they all kind of universally get a little dark. Except Tressa's. We'll get to her. Then when we start Alphen's final chapter, he's standing on a bridge in the middle of a canyon, and his eyes are closed, and I'm pretty sure he's like about to be in some angsty music video singing... Maybe he'll sing that song from the Donkey Kong Country Cartoon. I don't know what's happened to me. We meet the other apothecary again, and we kind of learn his backstory and more about his worldview on why certain people don't deserve to be saved by doctors. And to the guy's credit, he includes himself in that. He, like He's secretly dying, and he doesn't want to be saved because he did some bad stuff. Alfin kind of remembers his original ideals and why he became an apothecary in the first place. So he decides he's going to save the other guy, and he's going to keep saving everyone. He might have been played for a fool by that thug back in the third chapter, but he's going to stick to his guns anyway. And so he has to go find a ingredient for his newest potion to save the other apothecary, and it's conveniently right outside of town, just in the nearby dungeon, and he has to fight a random monster to get it. It's kind of a forced fight. It's like the game was realizing that they didn't have anyone for Alfin to fight, so they just threw a giant monster at you real fast. It's a shame, but it's understandable given that, you know, it's still a video game at the end of the day. You still need to beat something up, but most of the development was just Alfin realizing his ideals... Though I will say, this was probably the hardest of the Chapter 4 bosses, especially because it started reducing my maximum HP. There are workarounds for that, but I was too dumb to take advantage of any of them. Primrose's story, it kind of follows the same dotted line that was laid out at the beginning. She goes and systematically kills more of the hitmen who killed her father, and we learn a little more about the backstory of her town and her family along the way. We also meet her apparent love interest from way back in the day, before everything went wrong, and this is a point of contention for me. It probably shouldn't have been, but it's affected how I perceive Primrose's final villain, and it, it's, it's kind of like there's... There's kind of a shorthand word for it among me and my friends who've also played the game. But Primrose's old flame, who is also revealed to be the mastermind of the crow-themed hitmen, is some weirdo theatric named Simeon. It's pronounced Simeon, like the monkey. And I just, I can't take him seriously because his name is you know, related to monkeys. I mean, there are other reasons not to take him seriously. I mean, he's still a fun villain. I like him well enough, but his name is Simeon. That just over... I'm sorry if that makes me sound shallow, but that just kind of overrides a lot of other things as far as I think of him. Imagine Primrose glaring daggers at a monkey or something. And... I just refer to him as the monkey whenever I talk about him to the point where some of my other friends will just say the monkey and I'll go oh you mean that guy I got it Uh, but she does ultimately get her revenge and we don't really get a satisfying conclusion from Simeon he's just kind of true to his craziness all the way to the bitter end and Primrose admits that she doesn't really feel better after getting revenge. She still misses her dad. She still doesn't really have a direction in her life, but she vows to go find one at the very least. She got her revenge. She's not that thrilled about it, but she's gonna at least find something else now, which is probably the best we could ask for in the circumstances. Revenge is kind of a tricky narrative, those were honestly bad people, dangerous people even, so the fact that they're all dead now, I, I really... I'm not I'm not gonna cry over it. I, I'm glad she killed them. It was a good, interesting story. It didn't quite end on the note I wanted, but to be honest, I'm not sure what note I wanted it to end on. I didn't want that monkey getting out of this alive. Uh, I'm, I'm never not going to be amused by thinking of... Simeon as a Simeon. We get to olbrick's tale next, and I may have been a little unfair toward olbrick in the other episode. I'd liked him well enough and his story, it just felt a little cookie cutter. And it kind of remained cookie cutter, but it was still fun. The third and fourth chapters, namely the third one, I guess or when it really does it for me. We finally meet up with the rival knight who betrayed their king, and we find out that he's actually become the protector of this desert town, and he's not sad or angry to see Ulbrich again. They're Well, they're professionals. They, they meet in the middle of a lizard man rampage, so they both realize that whatever business they have can wait until the lizards are dead. And... They have a duel, and they talk it out, and the the rival is just completely understanding of Olbrick. and he's acknowledged that he he didn't like that he betrayed Olbrick. Like, he didn't like the king, but he, he still liked Ulbrick, and getting revenge didn't make him feel better. Oh, you hear that, Primrose? Yeah, yeah, it was, it was a good chapter for Olbrick. And then Olbrick is like, wait... Who's the guy who told you to how to betray us? Because that was a detail mentioned before. And the other guy's like, "Oh yeah, you want to go after this guy? He lives in the Riverlands over in this town, but he's really tough and scary. So be careful." And Olberg's like, "Okay," and I felt like kind of a simpleton at that point. I was like. Oh yeah, maybe we should go after the guy who plotted the entire downfall of Ulbricht's kingdom. That might be a good person to go up against, in case he does it again. I'm not sure why that never occurred to me. Probably because I thought Ulbricht's rival, Earhart, would be the finish line for Ulbricht's story. But no, we have to go fight that guy now. And Earhart actually shows up again in the middle of Ulbricht's final chapter to kind of help out from the sidelines, which is a good touch. And we learn that this Conqueror is just some kind of despot who likes to execute people just to flex his power muscles. And when you fight him in his mansion, he's inexplicably riding a horse during the boss battle. I I wasn't really going to comment on that, but my friends are endlessly amused by that fact, and... It is a little funny, so I thought I'd mention that. Ulbricht's story, yeah, it never really did kind of leave that cookie-cutter feel that it gave me, but I still liked it. Then there's Tressa's story. Her third chapter felt a little weak to me, probably one of the weakest chapters in the entire game, in my opinion. We go to another town, and we run into some of the pirate characters from her first chapter, including the merchant who kind of inspired her to take action for the first time. We learn a lot about his backstory, and honestly, Tressa's third chapter is more about him than it is about Tressa herself. I guess it's kind of using the merchant and the pirates as kind of a basis for Tressa to view and then compare herself to which is alright, but, you know, I like Tressa. I want to see, you know, more of Tressa's personal thoughts and feelings and her doing stuff. I don't want to see what she thinks of other people. And her third chapter boss is kind of like Alfin's final boss and that they just threw it in there for the sake of having a boss fight. It's just this random monster. Her fourth chapter ended up being the very final chapter I did in the whole game, on purpose, because, you know, I'm a bit of a sap for narrative symmetry. And it's the big merchant fair that she was told about two chapters ago. The journal that she got at the very beginning of the game is stolen from her, and over the course of getting it back, she's come to realize the question that's been driving her is figuring out what exactly it is that she values most of all is the journal, or at least what the journal represents. It represents the entire journey she's taken ever since leaving home, namely going to the mining town in Chapter 2 and meeting her mentor in Chapter 3, but because of the way I played the game, starting with her and ending with her, I kind of liked to see it as her entire journey in the entire game, with all the other seven characters and following them around on their quests and their resolutions and all that kind of stuff. It just felt a little more meaningful to me that way, and it's kind of one of those cases where I assign more of a personal attachment to something in a game than it probably deserves, but it is what it is, and for that reason, Tressa's conclusion kind of had an impact on me, slightly. Not as much as it could have, because, again, it was harmed by the fact that chapters aren't really allowed to reference each other unless they're from the same character's storyline. But, yeah, Tressa's chapter was a good crescendo-type ending. It wasn't as intense or dramatic as some of the other fourth chapters, but I liked it as kind of a mellower note to end on after what all the other characters had going from you know we fought a writhing raging wraith we fought a theatrical monkey man we fought a randomly horse riding despot we fought a bunch of thief overlords let's just take it easy at the merchant festival and fight this random thief lady over our notebook yeah yeah let's do that Admittedly, I was kind of running on fumes by the time I got past, I think, Therion's fourth chapter? Well, with with the exception of Primrose's final chapter, I suppose. For the last few final chapters, I was kind of running out of energy with the game. I guess that can also be attributed to the fact that it's climax after climax, so you kind of get a little numb to the whole thing. Another point to mention is that, by that point, I'd also been playing for, like, 80 hours. So, yeah, I was I was kind of weary. And because of that weariness, that's why I don't feel the need to go and get buff for the secret final boss, which I heard is really, really tough. I think I've gotten everything out of this game that I'm going to get out of it for now. I know what I'm about. I know that I'm not the kind of guy who wants to go up against the, oh yeah, this is the tough, you get big internet points for killing this guy, boss. Like, no, no, I'm not about that life. I want to say that Tressa's story is my favorite, but it's kind of harmed by the game's insistence on keeping all the narratives separate from each other. If I kind of put my own spin on it, then... It does become a little more meaningful, and Tressa herself is still a wonderful character to watch and see what she does. I think another favorite storyline of mine is Ophelia. I thought she had an interesting hook, and again, her conclusion was probably one of the most heartwarming of the bunch, if not the most heartwarming of the bunch. A bit of a sap, you'll come to notice. And I think my third favorite... And by the way, this goes to like the characters as well as the stories, because the characters are what carry the stories. My third favorite would probably be Cyrus, because I just love seeing what he'll do or say next. And on top of being funny, unintentionally funny on his part, he's very admirable with his belief in knowledge and teaching people what they deserve to know. It is also just kind of interesting to seeing how crazy his story would get, and how he's just Cyrus the whole time. Tressa, Ophelia, Cyrus, they're currently in my running for top three characters. Not exactly sure what order they're in. Honorable fourth place would probably go to Ulbrich, because... I ended up liking his story a lot more than I thought I would, and Patrick Seitz probably has the best vocal performance of the eight Traveler characters. Everyone else I kind of like more for their utility than their story or characters. Alfin was just very useful as a support character. Therion was very useful as a sabotage character. Trimrose also is a support character, and once I made her into a magic caster, and Hanit just kind of is a backup Ulbrich once I reclassed her into a warrior. Hanit uh, just kind of gets the short end of the stick in a few ways, sadly. Mm-hmm. I do like all the characters. Don't get me wrong, though, but that's my general feeling about most to least favorites as far as they all go. Also, I did reclass all eight of them. Not all of them were the classes I imagined I would make them, but everyone was pretty useful. It just goes to show how well-designed the game and the character classes all really are. The developers have said that they have no plans for DLC or patches or anything, and while I'd like them to at least include a new game plus, I think the game manages to hold its own. It's good to not get carried away with all the modern day gaming conventions, much like the sprite work. It's an example of how Octopath is tastefully retro. Well, that's kind of redundant because retro is usually considered a good thing, but let's stay on subject. Octopath is already a complete game. They're not going to add unnecessary bells and whistles and an entire chunk of the game afterward. No, they're going to. They have a completed project. Here it is. No more work handed to Square Enix. They actually made a game in this day and age that more people love than hate. All the time, I'm hearing how people don't like Square and their practices anymore. Okay, I'm not being entirely fair. This was made by the Bravely Default team, and I'm pretty positive that Bravely Default has more fans than haters. And I know there are some people who dislike Octopath. I think it's a good game, and I think it means good things for Square Enix, and maybe even the Switch, if they wisely choose to keep it exclusive. Now that I'm more familiar with the game's music, it's time for today's favorite songs. And narrowing it down is pretty hard. Yasunori Nishiki did amazing. I'll give a shout out to all the battle music in general. In the interest of variety, I'll only pick one. I'm gonna give the pick to Decisive Battle 2, which seems to be a fan favorite already. Just a good amount of climax to build upon the already exciting Decisive Battle 1, and it's usually associated with particularly dramatic or meaningful boss fights during the first three chapters. And as much of a cop-out pick as it might seem, my second favorite is the main title theme, It just sounds so happy and earnest, and with the montage of each of the travelers wandering their hometowns, it all comes together to be emblematic of the game as a whole. Just a good, whimsical time with these eight adventurers, and wherever their journeys take them. Even for all the dark moments in the stories, or the entirety of Primrose's story, at the end of the day, I think Octopath is mostly a cheery game. My third pick is A Sea Breeze Blows, the music for most of the coastland towns, including Tressa's home. All of the town themes are good, but this is the one I remember the easiest. It helps, of course, that it's the first one I've heard, but I just like how beginning of the game it sounds. Most of the town themes are generally happy or ambivalent, It's not until Chapter 4 you start getting into the depressing towns with the sad or ominous music. But this one sticks out to me as a really happy, but also mellow song. It really captures Tressa's upbringing, I think. And that about does it. I don't know if I'd put this game in my top ten, but it's definitely one of the best games I've played this year, and I want to see more games like it. If you want to hear me talk about more games in general, though, then you could consider subscribing to the BitCast on Podcast One or the Podcast One app. And if you're on iTunes, you can also find the show there. And hey, if you've got friends that want to play Octopath by hearing some jerk talk about it for a while, you can share the podcast with them. I've done a few episodes on this game already. Next week will be my 50th episode, so look forward to that. We're going to talk about a very significant game. It's nothing I probably wouldn't talk about in a regular episode, but it seemed like a good 50 game. Look forward to that. Until then, I will see you on the next one. Listen to BitCast anytime on PodcastOne.com and on the Podcast One app.